This is really uh, quite a thrill. I'm uh, an honor for me. I'm vice chair of the Atlantic Council, Boyd and Gray, and it is really wonderful to see such a packed house, standing room only. It's really good. And uh, this is about a very important deal. This, uh, this session, the road ahead for the Trans-Pacific uh, Trans Partnership, the TPP, um, and uh, this is being held on behalf of the Adrian Arsht Latin American Center, the Joint um, Global Business and Economics Program, and the Brent Scowcroft Center. So the Atlantic Council is deeply involved in this, and I really do want to thank um, Michael Froman, the trade rep, uh, and Assistant Secretary Russell for picking the Atlantic Council to make the first uh, major announcement in the United States about this, this uh, very, very important agreement for which Mike deserves our deepest appreciation and um, maybe a little more sleep. Um, the um, TPP will have a long-lasting impact on our role in the world, and hopefully we'll hear some words about this. Uh, about its um, impact uh, in terms of U.S. leadership, um, economic growth generally, and its relationship, of course, to the, to the TTIP negotiations, which are also uh, underway and being um, pushed along by, by, by the trade rep. Um, I'm going to shut up as quickly as I can and turn this over to someone who is really qualified to, to talk about uh, this issue and to introduce the speakers, Governor Huntsman, who is an alum of the trade process, the trade office, and of course, one of the leading experts on the Far East, having been ambassador in both Singapore and China. There's no one more uh, qualified to introduce Mike and to open this uh, discussion up. So please, Governor Huntsman. And by the way, this is on the record, and I'm told um, the discussion after with, with Jason Marsick is on the record, and our hashtag is AC Trade. If you want to start tweeting people, thanks, Boyden, for your kind words and uh, for your service here to the Atlantic Council. Uh, you've been absolutely indispensable in your work around global finance and economic growth, and we're we're much in your debt. Uh, as Atlantic Council Chairman, I, I thank all of you for coming to this uh, important event today, hosted by our Adrian Arsht Latin America Center, in collaboration with our Global Business and Economics Program. I'm particularly delighted that Executive Vice Chair of the Atlantic Council, Adrian Arsht, is also with us today, seated next to Peter Schechter, who runs our program. Thank uh, so many of you for joining us uh, and for your generous support of our Latin America Center that has really laid the foundation for a lot of our work on TPP that you're going to hear about today. Before we begin, let me just reiterate what uh, we heard from Boyden. Uh, this event is on the record. It's also being uh, live streamed online. And for those of you on Twitter, as mentioned, I encourage you to follow along with the hashtag ACTrade. We're here today to discuss the recent breakthrough in the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, and it's really an honor to be joined by two esteemed individuals, both former colleagues and friends. Uh, U.S. Trade Representative Michael Froman, who has been the key architect behind TPP, and Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs, Danny Russell. Uh, it's been an, enorm an enormous pleasure 
uh, personally to be involved in the Council's work on TPP, which really has expanded significantly over the past year and a half. Through our work and analysis, we hope to provide a forum, just like the one here today, to discuss some of the key issues coloring the debate and to do our part to help move the needle a bit on TPP by bringing clarity and understanding to one of the most important agreements in recent history. The finalization of the TPP agreement earlier this month represents a major economic and strategic breakthrough for the United States. This game-changing deal that far exceeds the scope of any existing commercial agreement unlocks a host of opportunities for participating countries, raising the bar for trade in areas like transparency, good governance, and labor and environmental protection. In a complex, globalized, and interdependent economy, TPP also bolsters our own economy that is slowly recovering from a global financial crisis while also cementing partnerships with key Asian and Latin American markets. I was former U.S. ambassador to China and Singapore. I'm most in favor of the deal based on what it represents for America's future in the Asia-Pacific region. At a time when U.S.-China relations are at a crossroads, the TPP agreement reaffirms our position in Asia and provides an opportunity to redirect China, potentially paving the way for much broader cooperation. To be sure, TPP also has been politically divisive across town and has been a contentious topic of debate as we move into the next election cycle. Today's event will delve right into the meat of the issues, providing us the opportunity to hear the administration's firsthand take on the deal. We'll follow the keynote remarks with a moderated discussion with Ambassador Froman and Assistant Secretary Russell, led by our very own Jason Marzuk. Ambassador Froman embodies a unique combination of expertise on trade policy and the political savvy required to actually get things done. Since assuming office in 2013 as U.S. Trade Representative, he has been devoted to reshaping and solidifying America's role in global commerce. Ambassador Froman's impressive background, having served on Wall Street and several times in the White House, most recently as Deputy Assistant to the President and Deputy National Security Advisor for International Economic Affairs, have more than equipped him to navigate the intricacies of trade negotiations. His steadfast leadership and commitment have been instrumental in surmounting the many obstacles in completing TPP. I'd like to take a moment to congratulate you, Mike, and your team on this great success and for the tireless work you put forward in bringing us to where we are today. Thank you so very much. I'm delighted to also welcome Assistant Secretary Danny Russell, who will immediately follow Ambassador Froman to share his views on TPP's geostrategic implications. One of the country's foremost experts on Asia, Assistant Secretary Russell has worked alongside Ambassador Froman in promoting TPP in the Asia-Pacific region. Prior to assuming his current position, Assistant Secretary Russell was at the National Security Council, where he was instrumental in formulating President Obama's pivot to Asia. Assistant Secretary Russell's extensive knowledge of the region has made him a key sounding board for the administration on numerous challenges confronting Asia. I can't think of a better person to provide us with a candid assessment of the deal and what it means for our partners in Asia. So once again, thank you all for joining us today. 
without further ado, I'd like to turn the stage over to Ambassador Froman. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, John. Governor Huntsman, Ambassador Huntsman, Presidential Candidate Huntsman, <laughs> Radio Personality Huntsman. I'd like to think it all started at USTR, your experience there. Uh, 60 years ago, President Eisenhower observed that trade is the greatest weapon in the hands of the diplomat. And that observation is worth repeating, not just because of President Eisenhower's military record, but because it, the linkage it suggests between the economic and the strategic importance of trade. Our trade agreements, first and foremost, have to be based on their economic merits, whether they support high-paying jobs and strengthen the middle class here in the United States. And that's exactly what the TPP agreement we concluded earlier this month will do. The economic case for TPP is clear. It begins by acknowledging that the U.S. is already an open economy, that our average applied tariff is 1.4%, that we don't use regulations as a disguised barrier to trade, that 80% of the imports that come into our country from TPP countries already come in duty-free. And for decades, this openness has been a source of strength, with trade liberalization since World War II contributing, on average, $13,000 per family to the average American's household's annual income. But when we look abroad, the picture looks very different, where the playing field is often tilted against our workers and our businesses. Currently, average tariffs on American exports are more than double what our tariffs are on our imports. We face peak tariffs in TPP countries of 70% on autos, 50% on machinery, as high as 700% on certain agricultural products. And the playing field is tilted in other ways as well. Our small businesses have to navigate mazes of complex customs regulations and other procedures. Our workers have to compete against foreign counterparts that lack basic labor protections. Our businesses are up against state-owned enterprises that receive government subsidies and competitors that don't have to maintain environmental standards. And in all of these areas, lower standards and new forms of protectionism undercut America's competitiveness in the global economy. TPP tackles these challenges by leveling the playing field for American businesses and workers by disproportionately reducing barriers for, to our exports and raising standards across the region. It brings together 12 countries representing 40% of the global economy and is the deepest, most ambitious trade agreement the United States has ever concluded. TPP cuts over 18,000 different tariffs or taxes that Asia Pacific countries currently impose on made in America exports, ranging from beef to tractors. It opens Asia Pacific markets, including the Japanese market, to made in America US trucks, autos, and auto parts. Its fishery subsidy reduction is both an environmental achievement and the first subsidy reduction any trade agreement has achieved since the Uruguay round 20 years ago. Its internet freedom provisions, protecting the right of the free flow of data and information, protecting against forced localization, will be a foundation for the future digital economy. And I could go on and on, but bringing all of this back home, we know that companies that export more, hire more, pay more, and grow faster, so that by boosting our exports to the world's fastest growing region, TPP will help support more of those good, well-paying jobs here in the United States. But the importance of American leadership on trade extends well beyond economics. There's a strategic logic, too. The positive power of trade, and of TPP in particular, is one of the most important tools we have 
for dealing with one of the century's greatest challenges. In recent years, a series of tectonic shifts, globalization, technological change, the rise of emerging economies, have combined to challenge the underpinnings of the post-World War II order. And you can see that stress behind many of today's challenges, whether it's territorial disputes in the Asia Pacific, conflict on Europe's periphery, or uneven global economic growth. The overarching strategic aim of our trade policy has helped to revitalize the rules-based order and to do so at a time when there are competing visions for the global economy. First, TPP is the highest standard trade agreement in history, and it will establish rules of the road to ensure that tomorrow's global trading system is consistent with American values and American interests. The choice is not between the status quo and TPP. It's between TPP and a more statist, mercantilist approach, one in which there are no labor or environmental protections, no emphasis on intellectual property rights enforcement, no disciplines on state-owned enterprises, no commitment to a free and open internet. It's very much in our interest that the global trading system be open and rules-based, that it reflects our interests and our values, and that we lead rather than sit on the sidelines and leave that role to others. Second, TPP will strengthen our partners and allies, positioning us to more effectively tackle the collective challenges of today and laying the foundation for pursuing broader mutual interests tomorrow. For many of our partners, the benefits of TPP go way beyond the economics of trade. They're rooted in the desire to strengthen political and strategic ties with the United States at a critical time for a region in flux. Prime Minister Abe, for example, has been very vocal in saying how important the deal is not only to Japan's economy, but also to its security and to regional stability. Third, TPP will promote inclusive development to expand the current order so that the benefits are both greater and broadly shared. TPP's high standards, including its labor and environmental protections, its provisions on good governance and anti-corruption, will encourage sustainable growth and development in the region, helping to alleviate poverty and promote stability. For all these reasons, TPP is central to our rebalancing strategy towards Asia. It's a powerful signal to the world that America is a leading force for prosperity and security across the region. The economic and strategic logic of TPP is already having a magnetic effect. TPP was designed to be an open platform that will grow over time and help raise standards across the region and around the world. And since negotiations concluded three weeks ago, we've already been contacted by a number of countries and, and economies expressing interest in potentially joining TPP. And it's becoming clear that even non-members are going to have to compete in a TPP world and raise their game, and that's good for everybody. Being here at, at the Council, I'd be remiss if I didn't look across the Atlantic as well. With TPP concluded, there's an even greater focus on advancing the TTIP negotiations with the European Union. We're working to accelerate that process and just completed an important round in Miami. And when we complete TPP and TTIP, we'll have free trade with two thirds of the global economy, making it easier to multilateral, multilateralize high standards. Movement on trade outside of Geneva is already having an impact on discussions in Geneva, on the trade facilitation agreement, on the information technology agreement, on the environmental goods agreement, on the trade and services agreement, and even on the Doha round itself, where as we prepare for the WTO ministerial in Nairobi in December, we've had more honest conversations over the last nine months than in the previous 13 years. What's crystal clear is that we cannot expect success from an architecture that has failed so consistently in the past. 
There's too much at stake in a well-functioning multilateral trading system that deals with both existing and future issues to allow the WTO just to languish. Indeed, the stakes couldn't be higher. As President Eisenhower said, if we fail in our trade policy, we may fail in all. Our domestic employment, our standard of living, our security, and the solidarity of the free world, all are involved. We're heading into a critical period for this effort. Trade is politically difficult. No agreement is perfect, and it's easy to be negative. But at the end of the day, the decision we have to make is whether we're better off with TPP or with the alternative future we're likely to face. Economically and strategically, the choice is clear. Thanks very much. My job now is to introduce a good friend and colleague, and I say that with great sincerity because we couldn't have achieved this milestone in the TPP negotiations without the full support of the State Department and particularly uh, Danny Russell, Assistant Secretary Russell. Well, thank you very much, Mike. Uh, thanks, Governor Boyden. Um, plan A was for the Deputy Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, uh, to be here today. He's been called out to a ministerial meeting in Paris, uh, the other side of the Atlantic. Uh, so I apologize on his behalf for the bait and switch that brought me here, but I'm very happy for the chance to uh, offer some ground truth about TPP. Now, when President Obama came to office in uh, mid-January of 2009, uh, in the first weeks, the White House was pretty thinly staffed. Uh, on one end of the spectrum, the high end of the spectrum, there was a distinguished uh, Harvard Law Review, a brilliant trade lawyer, the Deputy National Security Advisor uh, for International Economics, the uh, Deputy Assistant to the President, Mike Froman. At the other end of the spectrum, there was a, uh, a tattered uh, State Department Asia Bureau hack who was on loan to the National Security Council. That was me. But what brought us together and what allowed us to work so closely together from virtually from day one was our new president's strong sense of mission. And that mission was to resuscitate the American economy not only to pull it out of the ditch, uh, but to put it on the right track. And his conviction was that U.S. foreign policy needed to advance U.S. economic and U.S. strategic interests. He recognized that the United States as a Pacific nation uh, sees the Asia-Pacific region as the emerging driver of global economic growth. So President Obama and the team undertook to rebalance America's international engagement. He made the dynamic Asia-Pacific region a strategic priority for the United States. What did that mean? Well, in political and in diplomatic terms, it meant joining the East Asia Summit uh, that meets annually in uh, Asia. It meant establishing a regular dialogue with the 10 leaders of the ASEAN, Southeast Asia uh, countries. 
It meant holding numerous uh, bilateral meetings with Asian leaders and making visits to Southeast Asia, to Northeast Asia in his very first year in office. In security terms, it meant pivoting away from an exclusive focus on the Middle East, strengthening our alliances in the Asia-Pacific region, strengthening alliances with Japan, with Korea, with Australia. The leaders of those three allied partners visited the Oval Office in Obama's first six months, despite all that was going on domestically and with the economy. By 2011, we had modernized and revitalized our Pacific alliances. In people-to-people -people and cultural terms, uh, it meant that we initiated the Young Southeast Asia Leaders Initiative, a major program that uh, encourages and promotes exchange among the countries in Southeast Asia and with the United States. We promoted extensive other forms of educational, scientific, cultural exchange. We launched the 100,000 Strong uh, Language Training Initiative with China and found other new ways to tap into the youthful demographics of Asia. And in economic and trade terms, the president set very high standards and then unleashed the mighty Froman. First, to conclude the Chorus FTA, the Chorus Free Trade Agreement with Korea, and then successfully to negotiate the TPP. Now, here's a phrase I learned from uh, a former boss and a real master of diplomacy, uh, Tom Pickering. Tom used to say, still says, you want it bad, you're going to get it bad. And in the case of TPP, both President Obama and Mike wanted it, but they wanted it good. That's why it took time to get. It was worth waiting for. It was worth fighting for. TPP is the economic component and the crown jewel of the rebalance. Why? Partly for the reasons that Mike laid out, but also for what I would describe as strategic reasons. It anchors us to a region that is absolutely vital to our security and to our national well-being. And it's received in the region as a proof point that America is determined and will continue to lead, and that we are in the Asia-Pacific region to stay. Now, at the end of the day, what is America's great strength? Why did Ash Carter say that TPP is worth an aircraft carrier to him? The answer, in my experience, is that countries in the Asia-Pacific region want what we have. That's innovation. That's entrepreneurship. That's protection of intellectual property. That's rules for the internet, an information economy. It's environmental standards. It's good governance. It's labor rights, collective bargaining, transparency, fairness, opportunity, resilience. And as Mike has said, it's no surprise that TPP has already shown a powerful magnetic effect. There's a reason that a number of countries have said, we're going to want in on this TPP thing. It's a cutting edge 21st century agreement. 
And it's championed by a nation, the US, that other countries trust and that other countries emulate. Rules-based order isn't just a catchphrase. It's the practical application of the principle of fairness. And it's central to the security and the stability that we and the nations all around the Pacific Rim need. And leadership is not telling other people what to do. Leadership is showing other people what you are going to do and explaining why and making them want to join you. That's what Mike and the president have done with TPP. So kudos to you, Mike. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador Froman. Thank you, Assistant Secretary Russell, for those excellent remarks. I'm Jason Marzak, the uh, Deputy Director of the Adrian Arsh Latin America Center, and I'm delighted to now have a conversation, quick conversation, with these two thought leaders on the economic and geostrategic implications of TPP, uh, which, as both have said, is already showing its magnetic effects with the Indonesian president just yesterday saying that Indonesia, the Southeast Asia's largest economy, is now interested in becoming a part of TPP. We're going to look at a few different issues around the agreement, uh, diving deeper um, into it uh, before opening up to questions from the general public. So we'll leave about 10, 15 minutes in the end for, for questions from the public. Um, Ambassador Froman, starting with you, um, you mentioned the, the, the tariff and non-tariff barriers uh, that are eroded as part of, uh, taken away as part of TPP. You also alluded to some of the labor, environmental, and intellectual property protections that are really a, a landmark achievement as part of TPP. Can you please explain what some of those new standards are and also what are some of the enforcement mechanisms to make sure those standards are adhered to? Sure. So our approach really across the whole agreement was first and foremost to come up with strong obligations. And that's true in the intellectual property rights area, the labor environmental area, the internet digital economy area. And then to make sure that they were all equally and fully enforceable by the dispute settlement mechanisms of the agreement. And that's very important because for a long time, we, when, when candidate Obama was running for president, he said he, we wanted to, he wanted to renegotiate NAFTA to make sure labor and environment were central to the agreement and were fully enforceable just like any other provision. And that's what we've done with TPP. Labor and environment are central to the agreement. Uh, we have, uh, it's based on the ILO labor standards, the right to organize, the right to, to bargain collectively, prohibitions on forced labor, prohibitions on child labor, prohibitions on employment discrimination, acceptable conditions of work, and all of those provisions are fully enforceable. The environmental chapter is, uh, if, if I can say so, really quite incredible, uh, because not only are governments required to enforce their own environmental laws, but we've pulled into the agreement several uh, multilateral environmental uh, regimes, like CITES, uh, the Convention on the International Trade and Endangered Species, which is a terrific agreement, but has always had weaknesses in terms of enforcement, and now we'll have trade tools to help enforce it. And then we have a conservation chapter, which deals with issues like wildlife trafficking, illegal logging, illegal fishing, uh, the subsidization of overfishing, uh, protection of the marine environment, protection of marine mammals, protection of sensitive areas like wetlands, and those are all part of the agreement and all uh, equally enforceable. Uh, the intellectual property rights chapter, both promotes innovation, whether it's uh, creative arts uh, or pharmaceutical innovation, but also ensures access to 
the products of, uh, of, of those uh, innovative uh, processes across the TPP uh, countries. And those have strong enforcement mechanisms that go beyond what the WTO has uh, and make sure that we're creating an innovative ecosystem across the Asia Pacific region that all 12 countries and whoever joins down the road can benefit from. So these, including these different provisions and the text of a, of a, of a commercial agreement is really uh, quite a milestone. What do you see as some of the broader effects of the inclusive development and the good governments that's really, I think, part of the, the, one of the central tenets to the agreement? Well, picking up on a point that Mike just made, if you stripped out the trade provisions from the agreement, what you'd be left with are some landmark agreements, world-class agreements on important issues like uh, environmental protection, uh, countering wildlife trafficking, countering child labor. And I think this gets to the priorities of uh, the countries in the region. They want in on a network, or as Mike said, an ecosystem that drives innovation and promotes transparency. Freedom, justice, these aren't uh, words or principles that are in the custody of the human rights activists. They are what drives people to succeed. And what we see in the Asia Pacific region with the extraordinary demographics, the youthquake of these uh, young people uh, coming into a world that is networked by uh, technology and social media is a desire to emulate uh, the United States. So it creates an opportunity to refashion and restructure uh, the way that countries around the Pacific Rim engage, not only in trade terms, uh, but in uh, strategic terms as well. Now, Ambassador, we already have FTAs in place with six of the 11 TPP countries, uh, including uh, all the Latin American uh, uh, part countries, our party, uh, Mexico, Chile, and Peru, uh, as well as Canada, Singapore, and Australia. How do you see TPP uh, altering or updating those FTAs? And then specifically, um, uh, NAFTA. You mentioned NAFTA quickly, but ne uh, Mexico and, and Canada are our top two export destinations. How will, how will TPP update that, that, that accord? Well, uh, first and foremost, with regard to, to NAFTA and, and several of the other agreements you mentioned, including labor and environment at these high levels of obligations and making them fully enforceable. Uh, but NAFTA, as an example, and, and the Canadian Free Trade Agreement uh, before that excluded areas like dairy and poultry market access, and we now have tackled those uh, in TPP. We've raised and, and strengthened intellectual property rights and its enforcement uh, through these agreements that go beyond uh, several of our previous uh, FTAs. In areas like investor state dispute settlement, uh, we have helped uh, update and reform them uh, through, uh, through this agreement adding certain safeguards and closing loopholes and making sure that they're serving the appropriate, uh, the appropriate purpose. So in, in each, comparing TPP to each of our previous FTAs is a little different one by one, but in all areas what we've tried to do is learn from our experience, uh, use this as an opportunity to update or upgrade what we've done before. Um, and very importantly, you know, while this is, you know, and I talk about TPP reflecting American values and American interests, this is a product of 12 countries together working over the last five and a half years or longer. And it's a very diverse set of countries. We have some of the most developed countries in the world, some of the, some of the poorest countries in the world. Mm -hmm. And each issue, the dynamic is much different than a bilateral FTA or much different than a WTO uh, negotiation. Each issue, we, we work to build consensus 
among the 12 countries, issue by issue, chapter by chapter, and all 12 countries contributed in very significant ways to the formulation of, of these rules. And all of them were quite interested in making sure that this agreement set a very, uh, a very high standard. And it really is the product of the, 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 the wisdom and the input of all 12 countries. Yeah. yeah. No wonder you didn't get much sleep over the last couple, couple of years. Uh, since I record, one, one of the countries that is, of course, missing from the negotiations is, is China. Um, how do you see, and there's been a lot of discussion about you know, what, what, is, what is the effect of this agreement vis-a-vis -vis China and our, and our larger uh, positioning in, in Asia. How do you see TPP implementation affecting our, 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 our broader relations with China? How do you see TPP uh, uh, affecting the overall kind of rebalance uh, in Asia and the, and the pivot to Asia? And, and, and do you see it as, as, a, as potentially being open to China at some point? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I wouldn't formulate this as China being missing from TPP, as Mike said, uh, this is a group of 12 nations who made the affirmative decision early on to work together to try to uh, raise standards and lower uh, barriers. So there's no exclusion here. It is also uh, very much not an anti-China uh, strategic play. This is an affirmative establishment of high standards that I think in uh, the near term is going to force all countries, whether they are partners in TPP or not, to up their game. Now, I've said a number of times uh, that the world would be a better place by far uh, if China were able to and willing to meet the very high standards of TPP. But I think that the, the broader impact uh, on the region and on China uh, is going to be to uh, drive a virtuous cycle of uh, better regulatory practices, of greater transparency, of uh, openness in the internet. And uh, these factors are motivators. What TPP brings to the member countries are things that I believe all people, including Chinese people, want. Uh, the, the Chinese have, in my own experience, gone from uh, a hostility uh, and a caginess about TPP, which uh, many, as Ambassador Huntsman experienced, saw as some sort of diabolical American conspiracy, to uh, an I think an objective uh, view and a profound interest. Now, the other observation I'd make in response to your question is that while it is not a zero-sum proposition, the fact of the matter is that TPP pushes against a, a uh, tendency in the region to follow the path of least resistance. I mean, the members, the 12 countries, have undertaken to engineer a truly high standard agreement. They have had to make uh, choices and trade-offs, as Mike said. But what they have in common is that every member in, among the 12 believes that they have negotiated successfully an agreement that serves uh, their best national interests. So I'd be, I would be remiss if I didn't ask about Latin America, being the deputy director of the Adrian Arce Latin America Center. And much of the discussion is around the agreement is on the Asian parties to it, but Latin America is the United States' uh, fastest growing trade partner. How do you see TPP as strengthening commercial and strategic relations 
in our own hemisphere, perhaps even broader than, than, the, uh, than the three countries that are, that are uh, part of the negotiations? Well, I think it can contribute very significantly in that regard. And, and when we say it's an open platform, it's to not just Asian countries, but also to Western Hemispheric countries who may have an interest in joining. And there have been a few that have expressed interest in learning more about it and uh, beginning the process of, of conversation about, about TPP. And that, I think, is a very positive, uh, very positive thing. Uh, you know, the work that's going on, for example, in the, in the Pacific Alliance, among the four countries of the Pacific Alliance, is really, is really groundbreaking. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, I've admired from afar how much progress they've made in a very short period of time, not just in trade areas, but in other areas of uh, integration. That kind of dynamism is one which I think can contribute very significantly overall to the kind of uh, dynamic in the in TPP for raising standards and further integrating both sides of the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, Assistant Secretary, you, you mentioned in your remarks uh, that uh, TPP will anchor us to a, to a critical region. What is the experience from past uh, trade agreements insofar as uh, how TPP could potentially deepen relations with signatory countries far beyond the, the economic aspects and far beyond the, the labor and environmental and other, other you know, side agreements that are or, or formally what would have been one point side agreements by now part of the TB text. Um, how does that strengthen those relations with signatory countries? Well, I've never seen a trade agreement that has had uh, or uh, harbors the potential to have the kind of impact on our bilateral and multilateral relations that TPP does. Uh, I think of it really as uh, a networking enterprise in that respect, very 21st century. Uh, by lowering the barriers and by broadening the lateral trade ties among uh, the 12, it creates a community of interest that promotes beyond their own borders the principles of high standards, uh, open trade. Uh, it pushes back against the, uh, the drive towards protectionism, towards mercantilism, towards beggar thy neighbor uh, policies. And I think importantly, it's created a tremendous amount of uh, positive motivation and incentive beyond the trade field in areas not only like wildlife trafficking, uh, labor rights, uh, and the environment, but also more fundamentally on human rights and on uh, civil rights. We're able to have a dialogue on LGBT rights or on the respect for uh, religious freedoms and differences with countries like uh, Vietnam, Malaysia, and Brunei that I think we never would have been able to have absent the galvanizing solvent of TPP. That's an ec excellent point. We're going to, in about two minutes, we're going to open up to questions from the general public. So sorry, thank you for your questions. Um, but uh, you know, Ambassador Froman, TPP has brought out something I think very unusual in Washington these days, and that's bipartisanship, both for and against the agreement. Um, <laughs> can you respond to, what, what, there, there, are, there are a number of, of criticisms of the agreement. How do you respond to some of the criticisms of the agreement? I'll let you, 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 you pick some of the, the criticisms that are out there and, and how you'd like to respond to them. Well, look, I think uh, right now, our focus is on getting the agreement, uh, out, finalizing the details of it and getting it out there in public so that people can uh, read it uh, analyze it. I'm sure it'll get picked apart, and um, and I will say right up here, up front, it is not a perfect agreement. But I think at the end of the day, when people uh, dig into the details and learn about what's in there, and particularly not just compare it to the status quo, 
but compare it to what the alternative reality of our trade and investment and economic relationship across this region uh, might look like, not to mention the, the political and, and strategic dimensions of it, I'm confident we'll have bipartisan support ultimately for its approval. But you know, there's no doubt that, that trade issues are difficult. They're politically difficult. Globalization has had a significant impact on the US economy, on jobs, on wages, on feelings of economic uh, insecurity. You know, our view, the president's view, is that globalization is a force. It's a reality. And trade agreements are how you shape globalization. Make them reflect more of your interests and your values. Raise standards abroad. Level the playing field. Uh, we can't wish globalization away. We can't sit on the sidelines and expect things to change. We have to take the field, show leadership, tear down these barriers, level the playing field by raising standards abroad. And that gives our workers, our firms, uh, the best chance of competing in the global economy. And on that basis, I'm confident we'll get the support, a bipartisan support, for its approval. And, and what do you see as the road ahead for congressional consideration? Well, again, first and foremost, we have to get it out there. We have to begin the processes that TPA, the Trade Promotion Authority bill, established uh, back, in, uh, back in June. Uh, we're going to work with congressional leadership and the leadership of the committees on the precise timing, but we want to make sure we're taking all the necessary steps to have it ready uh, uh, when, uh, when a window appears for Congress to take it up. And uh, Assistant Secretary, just the, the last question before we open up to the, to the audience. What do, you, what do you see as some of the geopolitical consequences of not getting this agreement through Congress? We're all hoping it does get through. What if it doesn't? What, what, are, the, what are the consequences of that? Well, it's the converse of the virtues. I think it would raise real questions about uh, the ability uh, of the United States to continue to lead. I think that it would call into question uh, the possibility that not only in the economic sphere, but in the political and the security sphere, that American follow-through um, may be lacking. Um, but fundamentally, the, the, the momentum uh, from coming out of the negotiations uh, at a time when the region is changing in very dramatic ways as a function of uh, the internet revolution, knowledge economy as a function of globalization, and as a function of the emergence of this huge Chinese market, uh, I think is propelling not only the US, but uh, our partners in the region in the direction that TPP stakes out. Great, thank you. I'd like to now open up for questions. If you could keep your questions concise, because uh, we have very little time, and give your name and affiliation. The first hand I saw is right here um, in the second row. And we'll take, I'll take a couple questions together. Good morning. First, thank you for our first congratulations on what is a truly innovative agreement and is really an example of innovative multilateral diplomacy for which I commend the administration. My name is Esther Brimmer. I'm a member of the board of the Atlantic Council, also at George Washington University and McClarity Associates. If I may ask you two uh, questions. One, if you could comment a little further, particularly about the provisions on internet freedom issues. Uh, this is a particularly important aspect of this very creative agreement. And secondly, if you could, well, sorry, three questions. And secondly, if you could comment uh, particularly on uh, the implications for TTIP on are there elements of innovation in T, uh, TPP that are relevant for TTIP? And finally, if we could just push you a little further on the timing of congressional consideration. Thank Great. you. Thanks, Esther. And we'll take a couple of questions together because we're short on time. Uh, write these Diana. Diana Negroponte, the Woodrow Wilson Institute. Ambassador Froman, would you dig deeper, please, into fully enforceable? The panels could be considered arbitrary, and the sanctions regime remains cloudy. 
please elaborate. Okay, and if you, we'll take one last question. Andrea, we'll take your question too. Uh, thank you, Andrea Montanino, Director of the Global Business Economics Program at the Atlantic Council. Uh, we are celebrating TPP, but uh, of course you are negotiating the TTIP as well. So my question is whether after the TPP agreement you see that this will speed up the TTIP process, will delay the TTIP, TTIP process because you, you will be involved in, the, I mean the US administration will be involved mainly, mainly in ratification of TPP, or you see the two things not related at all? Great, thanks. So just to summarize, a question, uh, internet freedom, TTIP, uh, sanctions regime, and uh, digging deeper on congressional consideration. Sure. So on, on, the, uh, on the internet issues, uh, and this is really the first trade agreement to take on the digital economy, which is so important, uh, not just for big companies, but very important to small and medium-sized businesses who tend to engage in global trade through e-commerce. You know, when you're a, an Etsy seller or you're selling something on eBay, you're using software services, telecommunication services, electronic payment services, express delivery services, and all of those are covered by this agreement, making sure that those markets are open to our providers and that small and medium-sized businesses are going to be able to access their customers abroad through e-commerce. So on the internet, it allows for the free flow of data across borders. It pushes back against the most, uh, one of the most recent forms of protectionism, digital protectionism and localization requirements, countries that have required uh, companies to move their infrastructure, to put their servers in country in order to serve those markets. So it allows us to stay in this country and continue to serve markets, uh, markets abroad. Uh, and I think that has both broad economic and, and uh, broader uh, implications as well. I think with regard to TTIP, there are a number of issues that we've tried to address in uh, TPP that, uh, that we hope that we will also be able to to bring into, into TTIP. Obviously, there, there are different agreements, there are different challenges, but whether it's on the, the labor or environmental side, where we think binding and enforceable provisions are absolutely, uh, are absolutely critical, uh, to uh, issues around state-owned enterprises or the digital economy, including the free flow of data, consistent with privacy concerns. These are all issues that we're going to want to deal with in TTIP uh, as well. I think, uh, I think finishing TPP uh, we hope will spur on an acceleration of our work on, on TTIP. We've, you know, we're able to chew gum and walk at the same time at USTR. We have two completely separate teams that work on these agreements. Uh, but I think that having completed TPP, uh, hopefully it will give greater momentum to these negotiations. And we think that, that it's very possible to do that even as we seek um, approval of TPP uh, in Congress. And with regard to that, I think the timing is, is obviously uh, is really a factor of, of, of a couple different factors. One is in our control, the completion of the agreement, the publication, the beginning of the process. But this is something we need to work out with uh, congressional leadership. And uh, they obviously have a lot on their plate right now. Um, uh, but we want to make sure that uh, we're ready to go uh, when a window uh, opens and when it's an appropriate time to, uh, to do that. On dispute settlement, We've tried to draw some of the best practices from a uh, long history of dispute settlements in, in trade agreements. You know, the, one of the great strengths of the WTO is its dispute settlement procedures, the arbitral procedures. We've now, I think, uh, uh, I was just reading that the 500th conflict has been brought to the WTO since the WTO was created for resolution. So it is an area that countries feel comfortable going to for binding resolution through fair and transparent, neutral international arbitration. And we've tried to take some of the best lessons from those previous examples and put them in TPP. And at the same time, where we've seen problems in dispute settlements around the world, 
uh, and, uh, we've tried to, to learn from that as well and make sure we're adding safeguards and we're strengthening the standards so that, it's, it's, so that it, it addresses the purpose that it's intended for. Okay, thanks. Would you like to add anything else? No. no. Okay, next question is then the second row. Um, Paula, can we have a microphone? And Paul, we'll take your question, then we'll take the question right next to you. Afterwards. Okay, thank you. Hi, Paula Stern. I'm on the Executive Committee of the Atlantic Council, and bravo for your prodigious efforts um, on TPP, which is a microeconomic achievement. Um, that's what trade liberalization is. And my question to you, Mike, is uh, how you uh, argue that we're going to get uh, the wage increases, which you started your presentation this morning, um, through uh, a microeconomic effort, given the headwinds that we have macroeconomically coming from a slowing China and combined with devaluations of currencies around the world. How do we get this competitiveness at, 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 here at home? Okay, thanks. There's a question right next to you as well. Hi, Steve Landy, Manchester Trade. I'm one of those many former USTR officials that from the first day you arrived and laid out your goals and what you were gonna do, we're trying to figure out how to read our way back into USTR, but you do have a great team there. I was thinking of what President Johnson, President Ford, President Nixon would have said if they would have seen what you negotiated with Vietnam. If they could have gotten that in the peace agreement, that would have been a victory. My key question, however, is what is the mechanism you have in mind to get China involved? Not so much on the economic side, how to deal with that and so on, but much more important in terms of the types of political commitments that you have explained so well the Assistant Secretary certainly explained just opening up dialogues and issues the Chinese won't even talk about. How do you see getting to that point? Anyway, congratulations from the alumni. Great. Thanks, Steve. I'm going to take one last question from Ambassador Castillo here. Hi, Ambassador Castillo from Peru. Uh, congratulations, uh, Ambassador Froman, for, you. for everything. Um, a quick question. Um, how about uh, countries that you've finalized agreement that are changing governments currently? Um, how will that impact the timing in terms of the release of the text? Thanks. Great, thank you. So a question on wage increases in the, in the global climate, the mechanism for China and Chinese involvement, and uh, uh, elections and government change. You know, uh, the, we know that companies that export pay wages that are up to 18% more on average than companies that don't in the same sector. And so our, we're really driven by a desire to increase our exports. We know that every billion dollars of exports supports at least 5,000 jobs. Those jobs pay better on average than non-export related jobs. And because we face barriers to our exports, both tariff and non-tariff barriers, or because we face, as I mentioned, an unlevel playing field in terms of labor and environmental standards, if we can address those issues and increase our exports, that we will help it contribute to, to wage increases here uh, uh, as well. Um, you know, the trade agreements aren't going to solve every macroeconomic problem. Uh, but one thing we need to look at very carefully is trade growth has tended over the last 30 years to exceed global GDP growth until recently. And now trade growth is now either at or below GDP growth. That puts a premium on removing every possible barrier we can, tariff and non-tariff barriers, to increasing that trade in order to help continue to drive uh, competitiveness and, and wage growth. We know that our workers here 
are among the most productive in the world. You know, twice as productive as Germany, three times as productive as China. We, we know all the figures. Um, the, the, the key thing is making sure they have an opportunity on a level playing field to compete for those markets because people want made in America products. Our workers are very competitive at producing them. If we can just open those markets, create that level playing field, we can get the benefits of that, including in terms of increased wages. I think in terms of, of, of China, uh, you know, as, 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 uh, as Danny mentioned, um, uh, you know, China, which was originally hostile to the idea of TPP, has followed it very closely. Uh, we've kept them very much up to date on the negotiations. Uh, we have an ongoing dialogue as they pursue their own regional initiatives. We've also kept them informed of, of, of TPP. And uh, when they've raised questions about TPP, we've said, let's focus on the Bilateral Investment Treaty, which is effectively the, more or less, the investment chapter of TPP. And let's see whether through the negotiation of a bilateral investment treaty, China is ready to take on a high standard agreement, an agreement that would require some substantial reform of their domestic economic system. And that's the process we've been engaged with with China for over about a year and a half now. And we're making good progress on those issues, but we still have a ways to go to achieve uh, that high standard agreement. And then uh, to Ambassador Castillo, and I should just say, uh, uh, not only has Peru been a terrific partner uh, in this agreement uh, uh, from the start. But the ambassador, both in his current role and in former role as finance minister, has been personally involved in helping to bring this uh, to conclusion. I assume you're referring to Canada. Uh, uh, where there was a recent uh, election. You were, you were very diplomatic, uh, as is your job. Uh, um, uh, you know, we are in touch with our Canadian um, uh, colleagues uh, in the government, the civil servants who are there, who um, have been briefing their, their uh, new government. Uh, on TPP. Uh, my understanding, I don't want to speak for the, the new Canadian government, that's really up to them to speak out on this, but my understanding is that during the campaign uh, that they, uh, uh, they made positive comments about TPP, of course wanting to make sure that the final deal was in Canada's interest and we we'll look forward to working with them to, to, move, that, to move that ahead. I'd make uh, two additional points. One, with regard to China, Virtually every chapter in TPP represents an ongoing discussion, a line of effort uh, between Washington and Beijing. And as Ambassador Huntsman can attest, we have a truly robust uh, dialogue at multiple levels, including, importantly, for an authoritarian government at the very top uh, that covers uh, not only the range of uh, trade, economic, financial issues, but also uh, an entire range of uh, global and regional issues uh, including environment, including uh, human rights, and uh, including the treatment of uh, U.S. and other international companies as well as uh, organizations. With respect to uh, elections and upcoming changes among the 12 TBP partners, I'd point out, one, that each of the 12 governments, each of the 12 negotiators is, I think, justifiably convinced that on balance, the deal serves their own national interests well. Uh, they think that uh, they have come out ahead. Certainly, <gasps> we do. Um, second, all of the negotiators were involved in an ongoing discussion with a broad range of stakeholders, precisely to ensure that they were representing the interests and the priorities uh, of their own nation. And thirdly, for many of the TPP partners, uh, including the developed economies, TPP is a powerful driver for reform, for reforms that they themselves are championing 
uh, and reforms that in some respects are made easier by entering into a multilateral agreement. Well, we promised uh, uh, Ambassador Froman and Assistant Secretary Russell that we would end at 10 o'clock promptly, given their tight schedules. Before we end, though, I want to thank uh, Carmen Munoz and the red uh, dress over here for organizing this, this event. She did a uh, stellar job in putting this entire event together and helped to spearhead our TPP work. I'd also like to thank our Global Business and Economics Program, again, our Scowcroft Center, and the Events and Communications team for all their work, and uh, Governor Huntsman, uh, Ambassador Gray. Uh, Ambassador Froman, uh, since Dr. Russell, we look forward to having you back here multiple times at the Atlantic Council. Again, everyone, thank you very much for joining us this morning.